some of you guys, <clears throat> some of you guys may remember, excuse me, uh, I had a big old discussion during the sort of Kalis episode about the idea that, well, sometimes there's a disconnect between the intent of the creators and the interpretations of the createes, that is to say us, the viewers, the fans, the, the readers, the players, whatever heck we are. And I've talked, you know, about some of the different ways that can happen and why that might happen and things that might come, and all the consequences of that. So I don't want to repeat that whole di discussion. But I do want to mention it in brief, because this is a Ducat episode designed to flesh out Ducat as a character and to kind of set up some of what is going to be coming in the future. Now, we do know at least some of that was actually planned, indeed, uh, in this very episode. Casey Biggs shows up for the first time and is informed by basically everyone, even when they're about to start filming, like, look, you're not an extra. We're going somewhere with you, okay? Just trust us with this. So we know that they had at least some of the overall plan here kind of in mind by this point in time. But I bring that up because several people, including Hems Bimler, or Beamler, or Beimler, I really don't know how to pronounce it, uh, mentioned the idea that this was supposed to be, well, as much as, okay, let me rewind a second. He was of the opinion that Ducat is pure evil. In fact, I believe I wrote down the exact wording here. Uh, let's see here. Uh, somewhere. <laughs> I'm not sure where. I guess I didn't write it down. Whatever, he mentioned the idea that he is reprehensible. I remember that. And that he is evil, and that he is a Nazi. Those are the three things I mentioned. I swore I wrote that down. Hmm. As, uh, and he mentions this because it was his firm opinion. Now, of course, writers and creators are always going to have firm opinion of the characters they create. And I myself understand full well, and I'm sure many of you do too, the idea of you introducing a character or an organization or a plot point, and you intend A, and then people who read your plot point are like, oh, so it's B, just like automatically, right? I have no strong evidence of this, but I firmly believe that this is a lot of what's going on with Ducat. I have talked multiple times from multiple episodes about the disagreements between the actor, between the directors, and between the writers and each other about the nature of Ducat and what kind of character he was. And I feel like this disagreement is pretty much the biggest reason, like it or not, why Ducat is such a debatable character. Because, well, he is portrayed in a multitude of different lights. This is actually, if you're paying attention, the exact same problem that we had with Q, John Delancey Q, over in TNG. John Delancey himself, the director of each given episode, and the writer of each given episode all disagreed with each other on exactly what Q was. And so we have this multiple possible interpretations of Q based basically per episode. I, I've even heard the theory, in fact, I think one of my own viewers posited the theory that Q is in fact multiple different Qs to help explain why he's so different in each presentation. But we don't have that excuse with Ducat, unfortunately. He's just complex, which again leaves us to the question, well, what is Ducat exactly? Now, as ever, I'm going to be giving my own interpretations, but as ever, I'd like to hear your guys' thoughts as well. But I'm just going to say this really quick. Let me just go ahead and make this firmly clear that I disagree with the idea that Ducat is evil, pure evil, that that's his story point. That he is a reprehensible, disgusting, horrible human being. Do I think he's villainous? Absolutely. Do I think he's willing to do terrible acts? Yes. Do I think he's always been that evil? No. As I will discuss in future episodes, it is my opinion, just my opinion, that Ducat was already a not-good person who was then turned into a monster by the nature of the occupation. 
as I've said before, and we'll speak of again, one of the greatest crimes of the Cardassian Union was the fact that it destroyed its own people in addition to the Bajorans by turning them into cowards, monsters, or dead. So, that's my interpretation. A person who has shades of everything in him. You might say 50 shades if you want to be, you know, make a joke about that. But that's my personal take on Dukat, and that's going to color all of my interpretation and analysis of Dukat. So, wanted to get that out up front. So, at the beginning of the episode, Kira's getting a whole bunch of health injections in order to immunize her for this conference she's going to. One of the things I like most about that is the idea that, well, it's one of two things, or both. The idea that medical technology has advanced so far that the natural immune system of certain species has just plummeted as a consequence, right? Think about it for a second. If you have, like, I know this is, this is hard to pr properly understand, but we have extremely developed immune systems, especially now in this modern era, and have for most of the others, but you get my point. So we have the ability to deal with a lot of different diseases, but imagine if you had never had to deal with any of the diseases you have in your life. You're young. You get measles. You get an injection. Measles are gone. You never develop any immune strengths or immunity or anything to measles. Maybe you get chickenpox. I actually still have a scar to this very day underneath my eyebrow where there's a chunk of my skin gone because of chickenpox scarring. But, shh. Never got chickenpox, right? It's an interesting idea in its own right because it posits the concept that for all of their incredibly advanced medical technology, they are absolutely reliant upon it. Now that makes sense because they live on a space station. Now if you don't understand the parallel I'm drawing, they absolutely rely on their advanced technology to breathe, eat, and not freeze to death, right? Because living in space is actually incredibly dangerous and requires a tremendous amount of technological capacity to really adapt properly to it. That's just thing, right? That's a thing now in real life, never mind in space. So again, if they were to lose their ability to use that station properly, well, then they'd be screwed. And so the same general concept applies here. It's one of the reasons I always found the probe so terrifying back in Star Trek IV, because it threatened to take away technology, and, well, they kind of need that. So... I'm kind of with that on that side of things. Now, granted, this is Cardassians, not Federation or whatever else. But remember, this whole, you know, tons of outbreaks and plague stuff is specifically because their health system has been shot to hell because of the Klingon invasion. So again, the medical tech has basically been removed from the equation. But there's a second possibility here, which I find equally interesting. And it's basically the idea that it's not actually the fact that they have no immune system. It's the fact that they're space travelers. To again parallel this to real life, let's assume for a moment that you have the ability to just zoom around. Like, like if you were a regular traveler, and you could go to San Francisco, and then Chicago, and then Washington, and then London, and then Madrid, and then over to Berlin, up here to Moscow. And it, I'm, I'm going to stop, but you get the idea. If you could just bounce around the world at a very regular basis you would be exposed to a huge amount of diseases and viruses, low-scale and high-scale, throughout this because you're hitting a huge amount of areas where, those, where you wouldn't normally be exposed to them, right? Because they're only local or they're only being transited in this area or they only survive within a certain region or whatever, right? This is actually a real-life problem that actual business travelers have to deal with. My own Aunt Gloria had to constantly have immunoinjections in order to deal with her job because she traveled constantly. So it kind of has the same idea. 
in, isn't it not possible that anyone who regularly space travels, like anyone on a starship, for example, is someone who has to have constant medical checkups because they're constantly being exposed to new things? Like, there's a logic to that that I really enjoy. And again, these aren't even necessarily mutually exclusive. These could both just be things. They're, they have, they require the regular checkups because they're travelers, and they have the problem of the fact that their, their, their medical health is gone and their immune system just can't keep up. Either way. So then we get to Dukat, who is her, her, uh, I can't think of the word. Chauffeur, I guess, is the word I want to go for here. <laughs> You could tell that Dukat has utterly and completely fallen out of favor and power by the fact that they deliberately sent him to take a Bajoran to go to this Cardassian conference. It's just, yeah, we, we think this much of you, Dukat. And he lays it out very simply. He lost all his position, all his titles, lost his wife, lost his mother, lost all his kids. Except Zial. What I find most interesting about all of this is that the way Dukat presents himself, and a lot of this is probably up to Mark Alemo, he doesn't regret any of that. Let me explain this in a different way. This is purely impression. And as ever, curious to other people's thoughts, but I get the impression that he had his wife as part of a, let's call it a political movement. In other words, she might have been someone he enjoyed, someone he might have actually cared about, but there was no real connection there, no true love. And he had seven kids, which again... He doesn't really speak of any of them significantly other than his one son, with the birthday thing, all the way back in uh, uh, The Defiant, I believe, is the name of the episode. And yet he speaks of Zial very fondly, and states multiple times how much he cares about her, how much he's willing to risk for her, he's willing to let her go by the end of the episode, and how much he doesn't regret anything. I regret nothing when it comes to Zial. I get the impression that she and her mother meant more to him than all of that back home. Just an impression I got. Now, maybe that's not true, because I like to try to give multiple perspectives. So here's another one I've heard. Maybe it's just the fact that they're all he has left, or more accurately, she is all that he has left. Now, there's evidence for this. Later on in this very episode, he treats this freighter like, like a military vessel, basically. Like, they need to actually take this thing seriously, do regular military drills, try to up their response times, and try to do battle, you know, all that fun stuff, right? And, and that's laughable. Why would you do battle drills on a freighter? Well, because it's his freighter. This is a very common concept. I'm sure some of you understand this personally. I'm sure most of you understand this intellectually. It's the idea that, well, this may not be impressive, but it's mine. This is my molehill. This is my anthill. This is my ship. This is my car. This is my home. Blah, 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 blah. Right? And therefore, even though it's not something big and impressive, and it's not even what you really want, it's yours. So, it's entirely possible that Dukat doesn't really love Zial at all. But she is all he has left, and because she is his, he devotes himself fully to her. Someone, uh, I think it was Sci-Fi sci -fi Debris, mentioned the idea, do you think he would have cared about the battle readiness of this freighter if he had thousands of ships under his control? Probably not. But then again, that's because in that circumstance, he had thousands of ships under his control. Now, it's also worth noting that both of these things are possible. It's possible that he really does love Zial, and that now that she is all he has left, he is now more focused on her than he otherwise would be. These are not mutually exclusive, after all. Once again, I like Dukat mostly because he is a complex character. Because he is not good, 
and because, in my opinion, he is not bad. And if I might say one last thing, I have spoken ill of several people, including Mr. Beamler, God, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, several times about the idea that I don't like the concept that Ducat is evil, that he is just a bad guy. But the main reason why, I think I, I feel like I just explained, it, it's because it's a disservice to the character, and to us, and to the show. The idea that he is a more complex individual than someone who is just a bad guy with various layers on top of that. No. But that's just my take on it. So, <laughs> there's this actual night. Oh, I actually did write it down right here. Nazi, uh, reprehensible and evil. I actually wrote it down right there. God, I can't, can't even find it in my own notes. I've gotten to the point where I barely address my own notes at halftime. I usually just look down to make sure I'm catching everything, and then I go back up. Let me know how it's doing. Hopefully these ruminations have actually been doing well, because, you know, it's my job, and I'm trying to do the best job I can here. This is only a temporary setback. <laughs> Battle drill, freighter. I actually already talked about that. There's this nice bit where Kira suggests something, and he immediately says, that'd be nice if we had it, and he immediately apologizes. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not angry at you. I'm just angry at my circumstance. Let me make it up to you. It is Cardassian tradition to entertain his guests. Okay, sure. So they start doing... They start doing the, the dinner thing. And what I like most interesting about the dinner thing is two things. First of all, and again, forgive me for pointing this out, but Nana Visitor and Mark Alemo have genuinely good natural chemistry together. It's a damn shame that they happen to be playing these two characters. Call me firmly in the camp that says that there should never be a romantic connection between these two. But I do think there should be a connection between these two that is specifically non-romantic. There's this bit where he openly flirts at Kira during the dinner. And then she laughs it off. That's eh, good to know you still have your sense of humor. And he doesn't act stung or upset about that. Quite the contrary. He just rolls right with it. And that kind of made me think, that kind of dynamic between those two is very interesting. These two people who, in many ways, don't particularly care for each other, and yet work together very well. It reminds me of something Garak said. Like it or not, this is paraphrased, like it or not, I am a very good tailor. In other words, even though Garak does not want to be a tailor, and Garak does not want this job, he is good at it. And I like the idea that Kira and Dukat are a good team, and they show that multiple times, before now, and in this episode, and in the future. And neither of them really want to be. Or, slightly more accurately, she doesn't want to be. He, what he wants, well... He wants to get in her pants for whatever reason. <laughs> Again, obviously not a visitor. I'm with it. But, like, I don't know. I would have preferred if the romantic element was just taken out of that entirely. My opinion. So then we get off to... Oh, actually, I'm sorry. One more thing about the romantic thing and his flirting. I just got to say, I'm pretty sure that if Mark Alema was not as excellent of an actor and as charismatic of an actor as he is, that Ducat would come across as incredibly creepy with the lines that are put into his dialogue. Now, given what we know about the writers and the creators and their opinions on him, that makes sense. He was probably written to be creepy, reprehensible. But, once again, we see how the reality that we see on screen isn't quite as clear-cut. But I've already talked about that moving on. So then, Ducat is like, oh my god, they just killed those Cardassians and those Bajorans, which, I mean, is actually really messed up that the Klingons would so openly do that. The politics of this situation are actually very interesting because the Klingons are basically operating with impunity, raiding, and I want to stress that, raiding in Cardassian territory. They have agreed for political reasons to not continue the open assault on Cardassia Prime and the Cardassian Union, 
but they have their ships openly and just without even hesitation, constantly trying to destroy and take pieces of the Cardassian Union to further the glory of the Empire. Again, kind of Mongolian if you think about it. You know, Rather than trying to claim territory and actually use it, they're just claiming the resources and destroying what's left. It's actually interesting because that is a very, I hate to say this, logical move for the Klingon Empire. For them to move in this direction rather than trying to risk open warfare with multiple powers that they just can't deal with right now. Anywho, so, the bird is there. It's just a raider craft, you know. It's probably a... Uh, uh, Kvorch? God, I can't remember the name of the ship, actually. There's so many different bird of prey uh, models that they all look exactly the same, but they have multiple different classes of them throughout the series. It's always bothered me a little bit. So one of the things I liked about STO is that each new bird actually looks different than the previous one, so you can tell. And then there's just the Burrell, which is the Burrell. But I'm getting off topic. Point being, I like the bit where they go after the Raider craft and they're like, "All right, fire the tickle beam." Now, I know they don't call that, but the the visual effects and the sound effects team all do a very good job of making it clear that this little mini phaser is pathetic. It's, it's, it's basically like gently grazing the lower end hull of a bird of prey. And remember, this is just a bird of prey, granted, a modern one, but it's a simple raider craft. It does not have particularly strong weapons, shields, or armor. It's a dinky little thing. It's basically a fighter. Crew of 36... And yet, this freighter's phaser can't even touch it. Like, I I imagine, like, the person looking at the thing is like, what's our hull at? 99%, sir. (laughs) Right? It's like, okay, buzz over them. And so they just buzz right over them because they're completely not worth killing. This is when Kira slowly starts to teach Dukat about being a resistance fighter, which is a nice touch. And uh, a nice way to showcase how Dukat really can't think outside the box all that well. He is so resistant to all these ideas, and he is so opposed to the concept. And you can see why. Dukat is the person who is accustomed to having resources and power. He's accustomed to saying, well, I need weapons, therefore people will run around to make his orders happen. It is Kira who has to tell him what it's like to make do without, to have to be creative, to have to be a guerrilla fighter, a resistance fighter, a terrorist, if you will. And what I like most about it is for Hull, his, his hesitation, he takes her and, and basically embraces her ideas. It's like, wow, yeah, no, that's, that's actually a really good idea. And he compliments her almost constantly about it. Now, again, I'm pretty sure that was mostly written so that Dukat was once again trying to get into her pants. And I have no doubt that the real Dukat does want to get in there to some extent or another. But I like to think there's a little bit more to it than that, that he is legitimately impressed, that he really does think that this is good work. And he is actually like, wow, that's, that's a good idea, Major. You know, because he has this line, I care about my people, is what he says. I wrote it down right there. Do you think he meant that? Real question. Because one of the biggest questions when it comes to Dukat is his mentality, his motives, his intent. And intent is so important for judging a person's character. But we just never really know Dukat's intent. So, <laughs> there's a nice little scene. Oh, actually, before I move on, there's a little bit, there's, two, there's a little tiny tidbits of world building in this episode, which I really like. I mentioned the, uh, the medical problem earlier. Here's another one. 
Kira mentions that it's standard Cardassian tradition for the leader of a freighter to take a cut of the cargo. Let me rephrase that in case you missed that. It is built in to normal operating procedures in the Cardassian Union for whoever is the freighter captain to just get a cut of the cargo as basically grifting or skimming off the top or straight up bribery if you prefer. That is very interesting that that's so normal that, that Ducat would insist upon it and that she was well aware of it. It makes me wonder how... God, how do I put this? How much of the Cardassian Union only really operated by basically constantly bribing its own people. Given what we learn about the Cardassian Union and their situation, they were never really a particularly uh, stable empire. And there's a reason why the Union was never really able to make any significant gains against any other major power that it went against. There's a reason they stayed on Bajor for so damn long, or at least I should say, it is my impression that one of the reasons they stayed on Bajor so long was because Bajor couldn't really resist them. Not because it was super valuable, not because they had so much worth in the planet. But remember, one planet for a, a union that spans quite a few star systems, most of a sector, actually. And yet, they insisted on staying there because what else do they have? Anyways, that's getting into macroscopic politics. Moving on. So they have this nice scene where they compare the Cardassian rifle versus the Federation rifle. Um, I've heard several talks that this is supposed to be part of a real-life parallel between, uh, I believe, the Kalashnikov and the M16. I'm not actually sure off the top of my head. I'm not a gun person. I'm not actually sure how accurate or valid that is. Any actual gun people out there, please feel free to correct me on that. But it does sound like an old argument, doesn't it? The Cardassian rifle is very simple. It has two, two settings, and it, needs to, and it won't, stand that, uh, won't stay out in the field all that well without needing a recharge. But it's incredibly reliable. She literally says you could drag it through the mud and still shoot it. By contrast, the Federation rifle has a billion settings and can do a billion things. Okay, exaggeration, but you know, it's got like 16 settings versus two. Uh, it's got the ability to lock on multiple targets. It recharges itself in the field. It is basically the more advanced gun. But of course, it has more moving parts. And as anyone who knows anything about engineering will tell you, more moving parts equals more chances of things going wrong. So it's less reliable. It's an interesting argument, and actually one that's fascinating. I wish they spent a little more time on, but I digress. So then, they set up their trap. And, well, actually, I want to comment on one thing really quickly here. At multiple times, in multiple episodes, but especially in this one, Kira is polite and understanding when it comes to Cardassians. Really. Especially compared to how she was in Season 1. I like to think that after Duet and uh, Second Skin, especially those two episodes, that Kira has gotten to the idea of, okay, there are Cardassians who aren't horrible and evil. You know, that she can accept that now, that she has moved past her own bias on the matter. But she's still fairly anti-occupation. But you'll notice she has learned to be diplomatic about it because she doesn't bring it up, does she? Kira almost never is like, you're a horrible murdering scum. She, even back in... Uh, Oh, I don't remember the name of the episode. The episode where they found Zial just a few episodes ago. She didn't bring up the occupation. It was the other Bajoran. You know, uh, I can't think of his name. Kohlrabi <laughs> was the one who brought it up. However, what I find most interesting is that every time it is brought up to her, she snaps back just like that. Like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's not acceptable. He's, I'm never going to be able to forgive your father. What they did was terrible and so forth and so on. And I kind of like that in its own way because... Well, because that makes perfect sense. And it's a more complex situation than just all Cardassians are evil. It's more like, the occupation was evil. 
I think we can actually agree on that point, right? <laughs> but she's not willing to condemn everyone for it, and frankly, she just doesn't even want to talk about it. I mean, would you? So then they get to the part where soldiers and waiting. That's actually a nice tip. Um, <laughs> it's actually been mentioned several times that one of the most common elements of being a professional soldier is waiting. It's just huge periods of time where you're just waiting for something to happen, or waiting for the battle to start, or waiting for the enemy to show up, or waiting if the enemy will show up, etc., etc. That's very true. Kira says she has no problem keeping her mind focused. Gul Dukat admits that his mind tends to wander. Now, this is an interesting character bit right here, because his mind wanders to Gul Muret, the young, strapping, ladies' man who swoons woman and is currently banging his wife. Or was. They actually don't clarify on that. But either way, definitely someone who was connected with Dukat's wife. Now, what I find most interesting about that is that is indicative of Dukat's thinking. Not about his wife, not about his enemies, but the thoughts that Dukat automatically turns toward to pass the time during those periods of waiting are thoughts of power. Thoughts of what he will use that power for. Planning, scheming, thinking ahead, manipulating, trying to get to the point where he will have a, a, a set idea in mind of exactly what he's going to do, either when or if he ever gets the power to do it. I find that to be a fascinating character moment, because while I do personally think that Dukat does care about things other than himself and other than his power, there is no denying that those two things are at the top of his list. So, they beam over to the bird. <sighs> Let me just say that this is actually kind of brilliant. Whoever wrote this sequence is actually awesome, because what we have is a dinky little freighter with one big gun and basically just a couple of good shots. And all they have is the fact that they don't, the enemy doesn't know they have that gun. Now, the bird isn't that much overpowering, really. It's a dinky little raider craft. But compared to the freighter, well, it might as well be a Borg cube. But they manage to get them to the point where they're going to go ahead and take their thing. So they lower their shields, attach the tractor beam, and then they fire. Get the bird with their shields down, beam over, beam the Klingons back, win. It's all very smart, no technobabble, no, no need for, like, making up quantum phase resonance. It's all a very logical, strategic, excuse me, tactical battle plan, and I like that. In fact, I also like the fact that they're using the transporters tactically. Then Dukat kills the Klingons. Why? I have actually had lengthy discussions about this exact point with multiple friends over the years and a couple of people at conventions. So I would love, as ever, to hear your guys' thoughts. Why? Why did Dukat kill those Klingons? Did he do it because they might have been a threat? Did he do it because screw them for spiting him earlier and refusing to kill him? Did he do it out of vengeance for the death of the Cardassians? Did he do it because he hates the Klingons in general and what they've pushed the Union to towards? Did he do it as a purely cold calculus maneuver? No possibility of them being able to do anything back or deal with them, so remove the obstacle. Or did he do it because it was satisfying to kill them? What do you think? So then Dukat just gushes. And it's funny, as a ship guy, I gotta admit, if I ever got a bird, I'd be pretty happy. Fun fact, my own STO character, my Klingon, is someone who mains raiders. That's my main ship type. And I love it because, if you think about it, it's actually a really good ship type. It can do a lot of different roles. It's just not that great in any of them. 
It is relatively fast. It's got a cloak. It's got decent weapon systems. It's got very high maneuverability. Tractor beams, transporters, you know. It's basically a good ship, just not great ship, right? And after having been on that freighter for however long, oh, Ducat's got to be ecstatic to have his own bird. This is great. This is wonderful. And, of course, then they have all that Klingon information, and, oh, that's just a gift. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm going to talk to the chairman of the Datapa Council himself. Yeah, let's do this. Then comes the twist. The Datapa Council wants to use this information politically, diplomatically, rather than militarily. Worth noting that that is probably the good move from the macroscopic level. Let's just be honest about it. The Cardassian Union at this point in time simply does not have these necessary resources, manpower, and firepower in order to properly contest the Klingons on a large scale. In fact, if anything, the cold calculus of the situation would say that politically what the Union should probably do is withdraw to their core systems and just give up on all of their outlying territories entirely, either abandon them or evacuate them and just pull back to an area that's much easier to secure, and thus will be far more defended. That will cause them significant resource shortages, especially in the short term, but those resource shortages are already happening. Remember, Klingons raiding with impunity, right? At least pulling this back ensures that those resources that you do still have are 100% going back into the Union. But, of course, they don't think to do that, but I digress. Then Ducat asks Kira to join him. This scene is awesome, in my opinion. Once again, tremendous credit to Mark Alemo. You could tell there's so much sincerity in what he's saying. Kira says later that she wasn't even tempted by the offer. But what I find most interesting is that, regardless of her own personal feelings or choice, she believes he is sincere. And the way she says that, again, credit to not a visitor, there's a degree of shock in the way she says that. You really mean this. As in, she probably doesn't believe most of the drivel that spills out of Ducat's mouth. And with good reason. Most of what he says is just nonsense, or backspeak, or pride speaking, or his own ego gushing out. But every now and again, Ducat drops everything and just gets deadly serious. And this is not the first time we've seen this happen. And so she is probably seeing this for the first time for her. So she realizes, you actually mean this. You really do want to do this. You want to wage a one-crew war against the Klingon Empire, a, a counter-raiding campaign, if you will. And I love the way he talks about it, because he actually flat-out says, you and I don't have to like each other, but we can work together so well, and you want this as much as I do. And Bezor will be next. Like He actually put, hits several points in his argument to convince her. So she debates this for a bit, goes to talk to Zial, this is our final appearance of What's-Her-Face. I'm sorry, I don't know the actress's name. Hang on, let me pull it up here. This is the final appearance of Sia Batten, Batten as Zial. And uh, I do like the... <laughs> I do like how she's like, No, look, try and stab me. Damar showed me a trick. Okay. So there's a little bit of movement, and then Kira has a knife at Zial's neck. And she's like, Yeah, no. <laughs> and she gives a great piece of advice. The best way to survive a knife fight is to not be in one. Very true, by the way. Real-life knife fights are actually really, really horrible, and in general, you should avoid one with all due speed. Anywho, but that leads her to the realization, no, no, I'm not coming with you, and neither is Zial. And Ducat's like, what? And she's like, no, 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 listen. I have been through what you are going to start. I've already done that. 
And she doesn't say this outright, but it's implied that the main reason she decides not to help Dukat here, really, is because she doesn't want to go back to that. She has no desire to return to that state of her life. She's done with it, and she wants it to stay done. And she doesn't want Zial to have to go through that. And like it or not, she is basically the adoptive mother now of Zial. She's already kind of slotted into that position. So she offers her a, a no, you know, let me put it to you this way. DS9 has to rent out its spaces, which means there is an economic principle in DS9 because it is a Bajoran station, not a Federation station. Now that's important to keep in mind because that means, for example, if that was the Enterprise, Enterprise D, and they offered Zial to stay on board, okay, they don't have to charge for that. They don't have a budget to keep. They don't have to maintain any kind of financial or economical model because it's just the ship and they just have it. They use it. D Space Nine isn't the same. They have to maintain a budget. They have to maintain profitability. They have to pay for the space they use. This means Kira is effectively offering her free room and board on a station, which has a lot of possibilities for what you can do going forward as well. It's not, it's not exactly the Enterprise D, but it's a nice place. And she's willing to take care of her and be her surrogate mother and offer to make sure that she is safe while Dukat is out fighting the good fight. And I think that to some extent or another, Dukat understands and appreciates that. And of course, that's why he lets her go. That and the fact that he really doesn't want her to go through the hell that he's about to go through. Leading to the end of the episode. This is a very interesting episode. It's a very significant step forward from multiple characters, and on the macroscopic level, we see that the political agenda of the Klingons and the Union are both shifting into a new dynamic. And this is going to be very, very important going forward. If I was to use uh, a rating system, I would say this is a definitely recommended. You know, you know, when I used to use the stamps, it would be the definitely recommended kind of a stamp because a lot of stuff's happening in this episode and all of it's important. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.